This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It's the morning after Judge Michael Seabright sentenced Catherine K. Aloha to 13 years in federal prison. Her husband, Louis, got 17 years. The disgraced former Honolulu police chief and the former deputy city prosecutor will spend time behind bars for their part in trying to frame a relative and for a list of financial and public corruption crimes. This morning, we talked to Alex Silbert, who just retired from the Federal Public Defender's Office and who was the one who got the FBI to take a closer look at the case involving Gerald Puana and his mother, the late Florence Puana. For me, it's the end of seven and a half years of working on this case, and you know, so it's a little bittersweet in that way. And it was also, it's kind of the end of my career as a public defender. So I had some emotional reaction to it in that sense. Uh, But for you know what I was listening to and how you know Judge Seabright really seemed to understand most of the case and the facts of the case and what uh, the Kailoas had done and the breadth and the depth of what they had done, the extent of the manipulation of the law and uh, the abuse of the law that these two people had accomplished successfully, you know, but for the case coming into federal court and but for us being able to find some of this evidence and, you know, but for his obviously intentional answer to the question which caused the mistrial, you know, that's what set up my ability to go to the FBI and get them interested and get them to investigate in the first place. You know, so but for that, none of this would have been discovered and have come out, and we would just have continued on. You know, Chief Kaloa would probably still be the chief. You know, Catherine Kaloa would still be running the career offender unit. You know, so it's amazing when you look back at the small things that tripped them up that we were able to expose and finally get the FBI to look at, and here we are seven years later, and this is the result. And it was heartening to see that Judge Seabright understood what had happened, understood how corrupt it was, and really called it like it was. And so that was heartwarming. You know, just for Joe Citizen, you know, when you think of what was lost, you know, the integrity of those offices, you know, the Honolulu Police Department, you know, the city prosecutor's office, it's just so sad. It, it is in the sense of the damage that has been done, and and in that sense it is. But in one another sense, you know, this needed to happen. We, we need to correct the course that we're on. We need to have some oversight. We need to clean our house. And if this is what it took, then it's a very good thing. I understand to a lot of people it's ugly, it's damaging, it's, it, it, they'd like to put it behind them, but I really think it's a, it should be an eye-opener that this could occur and then analyze it and then figure out how to stop it from happening in the future. And unfortunately, I, I think there was momentum to do that as this case developed, and especially after they were convicted. I, I think to a great extent, the powers that be that don't want change are winning. Well, the Justice Department did prevail in this investigation, and it does show that our system works, that justice does prevail, and it did in this case. It did. It took a while, as Judge Seabright said, it took a long time, and he he doesn't understand why it took a long time. But yes, ultimately, uh, justice prevailed in this case, and that's a great thing, and that's good, and 
we should all be proud of that. What were you thinking when you were listening to the hearing uh, as Catherine K. Loho was sentenced? Because she was sentenced in the morning, and then the chief took his lickings in the afternoon. Uh, but what was going through your mind when, when you heard, uh, you know, the reasoning behind the judge's decision to give uh, K- Catherine K. Loho uh, more than what was asked for? Well, it's a complicated sentencing scheme in federal court, and we have these federal sentencing guidelines, uh, and he spelled them out. In her case, it was 97, I believe, to 121 months was the guideline range, Which, but there is law that allows you to vary upwards if there are uh, facts that haven't adequately been taken into consideration. So there was no doubt in my mind, because Judge Seabright had made it clear earlier on, that he was going to go higher. The jury verdict was kind of a mess in the sense that the conspiracy count allowed the jury to find four different reasons for the conspiracy and the jury misunderstood and they checked off only one box when they could have checked off four different reasons and the box they checked off was the obstruction of justice which happened to be the lowest guidelines so instead of checking off obstruction of justice and civil rights violation which they could have and which they later said they would have had they understood that that's what they would they could have done the guidelines would have been higher. So the, Judge Seabright understood that and knew and had told the parties he was going to go higher than what the 97 to 121 months range was. I was surprised he didn't even go higher than he did. You know, I predicted that he was going to give a sentence about where he did because the government was asking for 144 months. So I didn't think he was going to do that. I thought he would go a little lower. But after listening to him talk for 35 minutes and just really lay out the crimes that Catherine Kailoa had committed, I was feeling like he was going to go much higher. And so he only ended up going to 132, which is a lot. I mean, let's not, let's not belittle that. 13 years in prison is a long, long time. But given what I heard he heard him say, I actually thought he was going to go higher. Interesting. And then now what, what about the, the many lives that were just wrecked? in the wake of this whole investigation. Yeah, you know, what was really heartening to me was to listen both to Gerard's allocution, which was read by Eric Seitz, and to his sister's allocution on behalf of Florence. You know, the Puana family really has it together. I mean, they, they're they a big family. They were a close family. They're, you know, longtime Hawaii family. Lots of friends and neighbors and um, people who they know. And they they gave a very elegant and eloquent speech to the judge allocution as victims of the crime about the impact that it had. I thought they were those two allocutions by them were were really, really heartfelt, touching, and meaningful. And that to me was a highlight of the sentencing hearing was listening to those two people talk about the damage that had been done to their family you know, from their inside perspective. And he also uh, talked about the public servants that were injured in this, the judge did, you know, whether it's the uh, police department because it was the chief's involvement and the abuse of power. And then also I think there was reference to uh, former city ethics director Chuck Tato. Right. And, and, you know, that was, it was a one-line reference to Chuck Tato, but it stood out because the, you know, one of the people who've really been forgotten I mean, there are actually two people, that, for me, who were really severely damaged by this case and by what the KLOs did. 
who have been completely forgotten, is Chuck Tato and Lisa DeCaris from the Ethics Commission. I mean, they their lives were ruined, and they were destroyed falsely by the KLOAs and by the city and county who who backed up the KLOAs and by the you know the Ethics Commissioners who backed up and believed the KLOAs without further investigation. And those two people lives and and what has happened to them has really been lost in all of this and it was nice very nice that judge seabright made at least one mention uh you know that that Jack Tato his life you know had been ruined and then he was a good and honest public servant and there are you know in, in you know look not all police officers are corrupt APD as a whole is a very good law enforcement entity and there are, you know, a lot of good officers who are being tarnished and blemished by this, and that's a shame um, that that's happened. And any other thoughts on uh, the chief sentencing? I thought that was a, a reasonable sentence in the sense of, you know, he was looking at about five years in jail, and the judge went up to eight years. And for a man who's 60 years old, and for a man who was the chief of police, um, you know, that's a significant sentence because he's going to have a hard time in jail. You know, when you go into a jail, no matter where it is, as a chief of police, there are going to be other inmates who aren't going to be so happy with you. So he's going to have a tough time in jail. Now, there are federal prisons that are specifically designated to house law enforcement officers who are convicted of crimes. So he's not going to be thrown into a normal prison and, and be subjected to other inmates who he may have helped prosecute in terms of you know HPD. So he's going to be somewhat protected, but it's, it's not going to be easy for him. So I thought, you know, Judge Seabright really, again, wasn't going to let him off the hook. He was the chief, chief of police. Judge Seabright made it very clear that he believed that Louis Kahlo knew exactly what was going on and allowed it, not only allowed it to happen, but made it happen. So he didn't let him off the hook at all. And I thought the sentence was uh, very appropriate. That was newly retired federal public defender Alex Silver talking about the Kealoha case that he brought to the attention of federal investigators more than seven years ago. Silver tells us he's been writing a book about his experience, and he hopes to get that published soon. Two Honolulu police officers are facing Judge Michael Seabright today in sentencing hearings for their part in the public corruption probe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com slash coronavirus. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of 7,000 Ways to Listen, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about staying close to what is sacred. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. Hawaii's mayors have been advocating for tighter restrictions on travelers coming into the state. And starting tomorrow, Kauai is opting out of the state's pre-test program. HPR's government reporter Ryan Finnerty joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. Hi, Catherine. So you were monitoring that legislative briefing where all the mayors took part. Um, break this down for us. You know, What do the mayors want? 
Well, they all want something different, which is really the scenario that state planners and leaders in the business community in particular are hoping to avoid, or want to avoid, rather. Um, And this kind of all started in the past few weeks when COVID-19 began to run out of control on the mainland. Uh, Several of our local county mayors here in Hawaii began advocating for stricter controls on people coming into the state. And in general, their concerns revolve around having some kind of secondary screening for both visitors and returning residents after they arrive. Um, Right now, as people are probably aware, you are supposed to get the test wherever you're coming from within three days of travel. And then as long as that's negative and you have the results when you get on the plane, uh, you don't have to quarantine. Um, Some of the mayors want to have some kind of test after you arrive in Hawaii, but their specific ideas for how to do that vary quite a bit. Um, In a a meeting yesterday between the four mayors and uh, some state lawmakers, they laid out what they want, and um, and, the, and the ideas are quite, they vary quite a bit. Um, as you mentioned, Kauai uh, is going to pull out of, or has already uh, pulled out and been approved to pull out of the uh, the state's travel testing program. Uh, Kauai County Mayor Derek Kawakami said that he wants, uh, before they would consider going back to the program, he wants a mandatory three-day quarantine for everyone. Uh, followed by a second test after that three days. Um, Hawaii County Mayor Harry Kim said that starting tomorrow, Wednesday, um, he is going to start requiring a second test for all uh, arriving travelers uh, coming into Kona and Hilo Airport. So anyone who's participating in the Safe Travels program will take a second test when they arrive in uh, Hawaii County. Uh, On Maui, Mayor Mike Victorino uh, he says he favors a mandatory test for all travelers three days after arrival, so a little bit of a softer stance there. And on Oahu, um, outgoing Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell had sort of the least restrictive proposal. He wants to administer a rapid COVID-19 test at the airport at uh, Daniel K. Inouye International Airport for any incoming traveler who doesn't already have their negative test results in hand. And the city and county of Honolulu has stood up uh, a rapid testing lab, which the mayor says can handle about 10,000 tests per day. Um, Health experts, though, uh, are kind of pushing back. Uh, They say that the the data so far doesn't really show a need for further restrictions from the travel testing program that's already in place. Um, Physician and health insurance executive Dr. Mark Mugishi was one of the people making that case, and he said that the statewide health measures have actually improved since the resumption of tourism in mid-October. From a public health perspective, if you compare October 11th to November 27th, in every metric that is relevant, I think, to this conversation, we are now better than we were before. The average number of new cases per day on a statewide basis was 96.7 on October 11th, 94.6 now. Test positivity rate was 2.8 on October 11th. It's 2.0 now. The number of hospitalized COVID-19 patients was 103 on October 11th. It's 60 right now. And the percent of ICU beds occupied was 53% on October 11th. It's 46% now. So all better. So we've been safely managing it. Uh, in contrast to that interpretation of the data was, uh, in particular, Kauai County Mayor, Kauai County Mayor Derek Kawakami 
uh, and he kind of pushed back against that uh, reading of the data. He contends that uh, those statewide numbers, and we should clear, make clear that the numbers Dr. Mugishi provided were statewide, not broken down by county. Um, Mayor Kawakami says those statewide figures are not capturing the situation on his island. 35 of the 57 related to travel had negative pre-travel tests. So they, they did everything right, had their negative pre-travel tests, got on board, and for some reason or another, started to feel sick, came in for a second test, tested positive. 16 of the 57 had positive pre-travel tests received after arrival. So those were the travelers that took a test, couldn't get the turnaround time, jumped on the plane, and then upon arrival, uh, became positive. And so, although it is a, a success statewide, I think Koi is in a unique situation. And if you folks think that it is a success story for Koi based on those numbers, then, then you can correct me. You know, Ryan, I think when we talked to the governor last week, he had said there were actually a couple people that gotten their positive test, but they still got on the airplane. You know, so I'm sure that's, you know, made some people nervous. But what did um, uh, the state's health care advisors have to say about that? Uh, I would characterize it as uh, politely disagreeing uh, with with Mayor Kawakami's assessment. Um, and, and they did acknowledge that uh, as the chief executive of Kauai County, he has the best vantage point for assessing the situation there. And he's the one who's responsible for uh, keeping everyone safe. And, um, and it's his his prerogative to make that decision. Um, but they, uh, people like Mark Mugishi, who we heard from earlier, and also Ray Vera, the hospital executive who uh, manages Wilcox Medical Center on Kauai, their uh, main hospital, that they said that the, the new caseload over recent weeks did not appear alarming to them, and, and they looked specifically at Kauai's num numbers. Um, Mayor Kawakami in that clip mentioned 57 travel-related positives, so that's both uh, tourists, visitors, uh, and returning residents. It was about an even split between those two. Um, and 57 works out to uh, about one per day since the resumption of tourism in October. So at face value, 57 might seem like an alarming number when you break it down day by day, less so. Um, and that, the, the discussion was basically, is one per day uh, an acceptable level? And it kind of comes down to uh, the different officials' uh, comfort level with risk. Um, you know, if you look at the numbers uh, on Kauai, and anyone can go and do this, um, the, the state publishes the data and updates it every few days. Uh, Kauai is right now averaging about one to, new, one to two new cases per day uh, and has zero COVID-related hospitalizations. So um, the, case, the point that uh, these advisors to the state are making is, um, your metrics look good. You've been doing a good job managing it with the travel testing program that we have. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be proactive, but um, we're not in dangerous territory at the moment. And, and you know, that's, that's a matter of interpretation to some extent. Um, the policy advisors at the state level have been saying for weeks now, since before this program even launched, that if we want to have any kind of economic recovery, we're going to have to accept some amount of COVID spread in the community. And the trick is to keep that to 
a safe level where it can be managed and uh, is not spreading out of control like it is in many communities on the mainland. And they maintain, based on the numbers that we're seeing right now, that we are within that safe range. They say the travel testing program is a huge success. Um, and they think that they said that uh, the numbers we're seeing in terms of new cases are actually much lower than what they were expecting when the program launched. And yeah. so that people in the community and, and visitors have done a better job of uh, complying with the rules than could have been expected. Yeah, well, it sounds like everybody's got a different comfort level. But thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing. That was Ryan Finnerty, who HPR's government reporter. You can find his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check Today features a court decision handed down that affects the aquarium fish trade. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So this is a very touchy subject among the people that want to harvest those fish and people that want to conserve the fish population. Yeah, this has been a pretty contentious issue for, you know, going back a few decades, uh, particularly on Hawaii Island in, in West Hawaii. Um, you know, you've seen um, over the years even some confrontations, some altercations in the water, which can get dangerous and, and has led to a lot of finger pointing. And so in recent years, a lot of this has come to the courts and the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court had a very significant decision back in 2017, which uh, really strongly limited the ability for aquarium uh, fishermen to uh, fishermen to, to collect uh, these specimens out of those waters, saying you needed an environmental review first, an environmental impact statement, before you could engage in that practice, particularly with fine mesh nets, uh, which, as I understand it, is kind of the popular way to do that. Uh, but wasn't what wasn't totally clear and what was in dispute was whether you could still do that with other methods and still try and, and harvest those aquarium fish with other methods. This uh, ruling that just came out on Friday in the state's environmental court, Judge Jeffrey Crabtree, basically sides with Earth Justice, which is an environmental legal group, and its clients, uh, which are local conservationists, Center for Biological Diversity, uh, and, and the like, basically saying that, no, you, you do need an environmental review for all methods of aquarium fishing, not just the fine mesh. So that is a, a, a very big decision that will further limit this practice uh, until and unless you can get those environmental reviews. So the state uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources has got some work to do. They do, and they, they put out a statement saying that uh, they plan to follow that order, Crabtree's order, uh, but the way they will do that is to not renew or issue any new so-called commercial marine licenses for aquarium fishing. Apparently these licenses, uh, the, the normal uh, marine commercial marine licenses last only a year, so they're, it looks like the plan is to just let the existing ones expire. That has conservationists like Earth Justice concerned saying that there's going to be a, basically a run on the reefs on, under those existing commercial marine licenses before they expire. And, you know, there was that recent case on the Big Island where uh, somebody was uh, harvesting fish and uh, uh, folks that were watching what they were doing, like it reported them. That was, you know, it's been a really strange situation uh, before these court decisions where you had the altercations in the water. Once you started having these court decisions, 
Uh, you had uh, aquarium fishermen uh, in some cases trying to continue to do that, uh, you know, in violation. And yeah, that was a really strange situation where, again, this has been such a contentious issue in the community. Some people uh, over in Honokahau Harbor saw a well-known guy who, who was doing, who would, you know, previously do this, uh, go out on his boat and they flagged the authorities. And when he realized that he was, you know, being um, pursued by, by uh, local DLNI, DLNR folk, uh, he basically left his, his divers in the water is what, what came came out in that situation. Uh, and they, they were able to, you know, a couple of divers, they were able to, to get back to shore and they were, there was this whole search and rescue, but they found them and they were okay. Uh, but it all just goes to show that, yeah, it's it's been a kind of a strange, contentious issue in this community. Well, we'll have to see what DLNR decides to do. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, Read his story online at civilbeat.org. On the next Fresh Air, actor Hugh Grant, known for his roles in films such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Bridget Jones' Diary, and Music and Lyrics. He's currently starring with Nicole Kidman in the HBO limited series The Undoing. He plays a pediatric oncologist suspected in the murder of a woman he was having an affair with. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. If you're looking for enrichment programs to help supplement your child's learning during this time of remote learning, we spotlight one group's efforts to showcase Hawaii's rich history. The Hawaiian Mission House's historic site marked its centennial this year. It's launched a new interactive series for children and parents, too. Producer Lillian Song talked with Director of Finance and Administration Lisa Chow about the program that brings history to life digitally. When I started Hawaiian Mission Houses, it was definitely a struggle being Hawaiian Kanakamoli and then having this strand of a one-stranded narrative of the missionaries. And I was lucky enough to work with Neil Hitch, who came on as executive director, and we really focused on opening up this narrative, the narrative of including a thousand narratives, meaning that regardless if, if the narratives contradicted each other, that we still presented it as far as who walked on the site. It allowed my ancestors to have their narrative be told, and, and it gave the people who come, especially students, the ability to listen to these different stories and then create questions. So we were already interrogating, investigating narratives. And so in March, when COVID hit, our biggest challenge was how do we keep everybody employed? How do we make sure that we're ethically making sure that they're doing their jobs without just paying them, that there had to be deliverables? So we thought about who do we serve and was the education system. Um, I had two daughters who were now teaching at home. I had, we have several staff that have kids who are teaching at home. And one of our biggest programs is a field trip program. So we were considering all of this. So the first thing that we did was we started to go online putting videos, a day in the history. Our program coordinator would go into the house, videotape, and basically tell a story from history in the house. And then we had the education programmers do a craft, like a a 19th century craft that parents or teachers could do at home virtually. They could just, you know, tap into our website and watch a YouTube. And then we had Olalo Hawaii, a Hawaiian word of the week. 
So we were already trying to figure out how could we best serve teachers, families, parents who were teaching at home. When we evaluated the whole system, and with schools not opening, and the, the probability that it was going to be an online system for the fall, we started to consider how can we best serve. And through a grant from the National Endowment of Humanities, we wrote a grant. And with this award, we started to totally revamp to match our intentions of the thousand narratives. So we started with a three-prong approach which is taking our school programs to the virtual version. Um, so we have the, the one that we have done for years and years, our coordinators taken through the house just as if they were on site, it's just virtual. One of our signature programs is History Theater. We started videotaping actors who come in and do a historical portrayal of somebody from the past. So we have historical portrayals of John Papa E.E., e., Betsy Stockton, Emma Navahi, Reverend William Richards. So you can see a 20-minute monologue, and then the students can ask questions. And then the third thing we did is we revamped our curriculum, which is done through an inquiry design model. And basically, the framework is a project by the National Council of Standards and Social Studies and we have a curriculum advisor, Dr. Amber Strong Machiao. She gave us how to convert to the inquiry design model, which is what the DOE will be changing their model to. So we're already ahead of the game as far as our curriculum. So this program you said was kindergarten, yes? All the way up to 12? Yeah. When we first started putting things online, it was for anybody that just needed something to help with teaching, history, or even social sciences, or even crafts. And really, the end of the semester, we started having things on our website maybe in April. So if a parent needed their student to watch something and get an activity, they could watch our education coordinator, Yvonne, do a craft that you could do with any objects or stuff that you would have in your house. So it was, it was for any homeschoolers as well, which is basically what was happening. Our parents were homeschooling their students. Which demographic has the biggest response? Right now, it's, it's the teachers and the students that are familiar with us. So because we're a physical site on Oahu, the students who come to our site are schools from Oahu. What is exciting now is that we're starting to reach out to, to neighboring islands. So in the spring and the end of this school year, we have schools from Maui that will be taking a virtual tour, uh, potential for Kauai and Hawaii Island. We also, last year, staff went to New England through the Boston area to celebrate the bicentennial of the first ship that came to Hawaii. And so we have some partners over there that are also welcome to access the virtual program. Hmm. Was that the one where Henry Opu Kahaia yes, was being celebrated? Yes. So we went, it was, uh, we toured a program with Moses Good and his one-man play of Opu Kahaia. And the last leg of that, he gave the performance and members from Kauai Hau Church 
gave a sermon on the same pulpit that Opukahia went to church at, and the last time that someone gave a sermon in Olalo Hawaii, and the sermon last year was given in Olalo Hawaii, mm-hmm. 200 years later. And I think that's kind of um, what we, you know, with the historical trails, it's popular, schools like to access because it's engaging, right? You actually see this person speaking to you. The scripts are written from the journals, from ledgers, from letters, and so it's their actual words. You know, you breathe life, you see the actual person. Sometimes I think we forget about the past. You know, as a Hawaiian, that's what our foundation is, right? In order to move forward, you have to look to the past. And we have some really cool things that I, I mean, as not a trained historian, but definitely loving the material that we you can hold a letter from the queen or you can actually see the actual handwriting. One of the tours that you can take with the kids, which is the popular one, is letter writing. So students can look at letters that have been written by missionaries or kids to each other, or we have letters from the Ali'i, and then talk about how you communicate. You know, you had to write a letter and, and, and script and the implements they use to write letters, and how do you communicate now with your friends and family? How do you communicate differently than they did back then? Do you write the same thing? Are your questions that you're writing in the letter the same as in a text? But we also have pictures, too. I mean, we have pictures of in the missionaries, they used to send their children back to New England to get educated. So they may not see their child again until they're 21. And so that's what a picture was, was something different than how we snap pictures now. And it's the same thing with if you go across the street to the palace, you can see portraits of the elite. So even taking pictures means something different in today's world. And it's it's really good for students to understand the progression of what a picture does. And as they take them, that those pictures themselves will be looked at 20 years from now, 30 years from now. We're just really excited about the virtual program because at a certain point, there's only students from Oahu that would come for the field trip. But we're really excited to open up this narrative and the opportunity to neighboring islands to look at students from the continent that possibly want to learn about some of the history over in Hawaii, but also to offer this multiple narrative, to be able to really have the children and students think about the the larger question. This whole time that we've been on lockdown, I can guarantee you that the staff and our different teams that we put together and contractors are working to make sure that the information is accessible on our website, virtually, and wherever 2021 takes us. You've been listening to Hawaiian Mission House's Lisa Chow, who also teaches at Leeward Community College and Chaminade University. The new virtual field trips are open to all students, teachers, and families. The curriculum covers Hawaii history, particularly between 1820 and 1863, it's offered in both Olelo Hawaii and in English. Participants can view live tours, historical theater performance videos, and interactive Q&As online. We'll post links on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. Christmas 2020 will go down as a strange one for the Santa Diaries. For 25 years, Makaha resident Don Kennedy has stood in for Santa at various homeless shelters, nonprofit groups, and on military bases. He's written a couple of books about his experiences, but Santa in the time of COVID-19 is like no other. He just returned from the West Coast where he paid visits to families, evacuees of the terrible wildland fires in northern, central, and southern California. This contactless Santa experience has been, in his words, rather odd. He's in his 70s, so he's at risk for the virus, but that hasn't stopped him from doing what he loves during this holiday season. Kennedy is a retired casino marketing executive, so he knows a thing or two about gambling and risk. He talked to us about the strangeness of this season as Santos are trying shields, plastic barriers, and distancing even more than six feet. I wore a white mask so that at least it blended in a little bit. But kids, especially, you know, five, six years old, four years old, they want to rush up and hug Santa. And that was the most difficult part uh, that I dealt with. If, If a child just absolutely broke free of their parents and came up, we just went along with it because it, I mean, it's, It's just too much, too much heartbreak to turn a child away. These are kids that probably don't fully understand what happened, but a good friend of mine in the Red Cross a number of years ago when I started doing this told me to, when I went home the next day and I turned onto my street, picture that nothing there at all. And then you can get a little bit of a feel for what these families are dealing with. There is that tremendous loss and the, I would imagine, the post-traumatic stress that goes along with it. Exactly. And the uh, shelter volunteers always fill you in a little bit. If, if it's a smaller shelter, let's say there's only eight or ten families, can give you a little better feel of what people are dealing with. So I was fortunate, blessed. When I was going to college, I was studying to be a minister at Concordia College. And so I had a number of counseling classes that I took as part of my studies. And I found over the years that that helped me quite a bit in understanding people's situations. So what was this like for you, this experience? Because you didn't have the physical contact um, with the families, with the kids. For me, it was it was very special because we were able to do it. I think initially we thought we might not be able to do it at all. I think probably more than any other time that I've done this, this was probably the year that was most meaningful. Like I say, it broke my heart not to be able to physically hug kids. And the other thing that happened is I kept losing my voice because I had to talk a lot louder. Ah, uh, yes, muffled by the mask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I I ended up shouting a lot more than I, I guess I probably should have. But there's just something about Santa Claus that gives people hope and encouragement. And so that was the thing that I tried to do the most. 
was to, I mean, I mentioned why we were all wearing masks, the importance of us being safe with each other, but I still think that the, the hope and the encouragement came through. And of the different restrictions that you folks played with, you know, the, the variations on distancing, what do you think works best? I'm not sure. I'd like to say uh, some of the volunteer centers that I've talked to are, are going to be or have been just starting to use uh, the plastic shield. So far, I'm okay. I mean, I got tested every day, and I changed to a different Santa suit each day just to be extra careful because of the just the material that it's made of and things like that and the beard and that. But I think we're going to make it through this Christmas. I think it would just be too difficult to just pass on doing Santa Claus at all. And I know that some of my Santas are doing that because of age and things. I mean, I just turned 70 in August, so I think about that sometimes. But I still think it's important that we that Santa is out there and provides the hope and encouragement that's needed. Was there anything that struck you from this most recent experience with, you know, with these children that have suffered this major loss? There was one in particular. Uh, it was a little girl. She was probably six, and her biggest concern was that her dog, her little puppy, was lost in the fire. And her uncle had purchased a another dog that was very similar and brought it to the uh, the shelter and let me know that what he had so at a certain point when she was finished telling her story we pulled the puppy out and it was really special because her uncle had put a, a little dog mask on the puppy and that, that just broke up the entire room it, it changed the whole feeling in the room and you've had gosh more than 25 years of of playing santa and lots of santa stories i think in the first book that you did you said in the very first chapter it was about what a young kailua boy right who's uh, whose family was stationed uh, over there in las vegas i have been uh, coming to the islands as a visitor for about 40 years i am a island boy at heart uh, so i I know some of the phrases I understand. So this was at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, and the family was stationed there. And the little boy, he was seven, I think. His dad was uh, was in Iraq, and his mom happened to be working that night. So the little guy came uh, to the recreation center, and he just, he looked, I mean, really sad. He had sad eyes. And so the head elf brought him up and introduced him, said it was Kyle from Kailua. And so I gave him the shaka sign, and I said, uh, Aloha, Kyle from Kailua, Medikalikimaka. And his eyes got huge round, his jaw dropped, and he just stared at me for about 10 seconds, and then he just ran over and gave me a big hug. So I, uh, I was able to cheer him up for the night. So he sat on the stage for about an hour and listened to all of the children's stories. And then when he left, he gave me a big big Hawaiian a smile and gave me the shaka sign and, and went off. And that really makes it for you, doesn't it? It does. You know, I, I've, it can be very emotional for Santa, and you have to try to keep your emotions in check. But there's a couple times, you know, where you just take a break for 10 minutes to pull 
yourself together, and that was one of those, because the head elf told me, he said, he said I know Kyle's family, and, and they just moved here maybe four or five months. Obviously, they don't really know a lot of people. And on military bases, you know, I, I think it's tough on kids and families because they're from all over the United States. So these people not only are are in a strange town, but they're away from their home uh, at Christmas. I have done an awful lot of uh, military bases because I have a great respect for service. And uh, as I said, I you know, you can tell that people probably need a little bit more hope and encouragement. I always end up with kids whose parents are deployed, which, which I think is even more difficult. So I get asked often over the years if I can make room in the sleigh to stop and pick up their deployed mom or dad, wherever they happen to be, in Korea or Germany. Or, and I, I remember in particular there was a family, uh, it was a little girl, and she was about six, and she came up and said that her mommy was in Afghanistan. That's the best she could pronounce it. And if she didn't get any presents, would she be able, would I have room in the, the sleigh to bring her mommy back? Uh, her dad was with her. So basically what I said was I, you know, her mommy needed to be in Afghanistan a little bit longer, but Santa knew exactly where she was, and he would stop and give her a big hug from her daughter and her husband. And the little girl looked at her dad and said, is that okay? Well, she was, she was happy with that. Well, we are certainly grateful that you carve out time to bring hope to families across the globe, wherever you happen to be. You're, you're spending Christmas in Makaha? Yes, it's my first full Christmas here, so I'm going to be doing some volunteer Santas in December. I'm going to be careful. And I've also been thinking about maybe getting on the back of a pickup truck and just driving through the streets on the Waianae Coast and just waving, you know, maybe that'll bring some joy to kids. Okay, we'll, we'll be looking out for you, drive-by Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Catherine. Thank you so much. And Melik Likimaka. That was Don Kennedy, a stand-in Santa and author of the book Kids Say the Darnest Things to Santa Claus. Volume 2 has just been published and is available if you want a diversion from these odd times. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. 
Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we check in with Shaka Santa. Honolulu City Lights 2020 will be modified because of COVID-19. We talked to the man who was going down in the history books as the longest-running Shaka Santa. It's been more than three decades. He shares his Santa memories. We would like to hear from you. Do you have a story about Santa that you want to share? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.